I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best. And this is Cocoon, Stories of Gestation. We've been saying it since the beginning. This is not a podcast about pregnancy. And yet, each episode features as a pretty major player, pregnancy. So we think it's about time that we switch things up. Pregnancy is not the only way that families grow, and not getting pregnant can be just as life-altering, just as character-building, and just as transformative an experience as an actual, literal gestation. Today we're going to introduce you to Misty Bro, whose story is all kinds of interesting and powerful. So many kinds, in fact, that we're sharing it in two parts. We're tracing Misty's story from the very beginning, well before she was thinking about having kids, before she was married, or had even met her husband starting with some harrowing health issues, through some failed attempts to grow their family, and finally, in part two, the next episode, to the adoption stories of each of her children. There's a lot of ground to cover, and we wanted to give it the attention it deserves. We'll start at the beginning. Misty is an 18-year-old college freshman, happy, normal, and about to head out on a road trip to Vegas with her friends. was not President's Day, but it was one of the long weekends. And so we had planned on going to Vegas, I think, or something. <laughs> and um, so I was pretty excited, but I kind of been feeling like I had the flu or something. It was a little, it was a little off and uh, getting kind of, kind of dizzy and kind of not feeling great. So I, I laid down to take a nap before um, we were going to leave. And then when I got up, I, the left side of my body was really weak, but I couldn't, I, I wasn't in pain. And I'm like, I'll get some, you know, saltines and Sprite because that, that's what you do when you're sick. So I went to the dining hall and my friends were like, you look really not good. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. And, and they kept saying, no, this is, you don't look well like and I was walking sideways like it was like paddling with one oar kind of thing I was walking sideways. Misty's friends were kind of freaked out by how she looked and how she was walking but you know she was a college freshman and really hoping to have some fun. It wasn't until one of the girls in her hall a sports med major chimed in that Misty got kind of serious about what was happening to her. Kind of. She looked at me and she's like there's something not right you need to go to the doctor. And I said, the doctor's just going to tell me that I have the flu, and they'll tell me to drink lots of fluids, and they'll send me home. She's like, prove it. She kind of called my bluff. <laughs> she said, all right, if that's what they're going to say, then that's what they're going to say, and then you can go. But you have to promise me that you're going to go. So they actually, they drove me because I was having a hard time walking. But I still, I was like, I'm not in pain. I'm fine. I went into the clinic, and in the examining room, it was tiny. I could hardly walk from one side to the other side without like falling or moving like in the wrong direction. And the (laughs) student, I think it was like a med student or somebody, he was like, this is not, this is not good. So he referred me to um, the hospital and I got to the hospital and I was in the waiting room for three hours and my friends were like, act like you're in pain. Come on, <laughs> say something so they'll get you in. And so I literally said with my hand on my head, oh, the pain. 
And we were all just laughing. And at this point, I mean, I had this like gaggle of people with me because we were all planning on going on this trip. And instead they were like, oh, this is something new that's happening instead. <laughs> Let's go to the ER. And they got me in and they did all these different scans, as many as they could. And they, they said, you know, there's something that doesn't look quite right. We're not sure what's going on with you, but it just doesn't look good. Miss Cecil didn't feel any urgency about the situation. She didn't feel any pain. She was able to speak just fine. It was just the awkward movement that everyone was making such a big deal about. But at the smallish hospital she'd gone to, they didn't have the right equipment to check her out and make a diagnosis. Or any ambulances available to transport her. So they told her to drive an hour north to the University of Utah Hospital. And as a stupid college student, I had no idea. I'm like, great, okay. (laughs) So my friends and I... We all piled into a car, an old car, one of my friends' old rundown cars, and we drove to Salt Lake in the middle of the night and got to the University of Utah Hospital and couldn't figure out where I was really supposed to go. They had directed me that I needed to have a CT and an MRI and all these things right when I got there, but we didn't know. So we were kind of wandering around in the middle of the night, and I was really having a hard time walking at this point. So they put me in a wheelchair and we were like racing, like running in the hallways. We were just having fun. It wasn't like we didn't sense any kind of emergency. So we got there and they did, I remember they did some scans and I was very annoying because I had just taken a psych psych 101 kind of class. So I'm like, oh, is it the occipital lobe that was affected? And (laughs) because my eye was misdirected. So I'm like, oh, it has something to do with that region of my brain and they're like well obviously it hasn't affect your verbal ability because <laughs> I was kind of annoying and so then they said all right this is this is the point where I start getting a little hazy um in my remembering but they said okay you need to call your parents and my parents lived in Texas and so there was a time difference and at this point it was about three in the morning or probably no like two in the morning so that meant it was you know, two hours difference in Texas. And um, they said, you need to call your parents and tell them that you're going to be admitted to the University of Utah Hospital. And I was just like, but I'm not in pain. I'm feeling okay. Obviously, I can still talk to you. I'm doing okay. And they're like, no, it looks like you've had a stroke and it looks like you're going to have more. Um, So you need to call your parents. But even with the orders to make an early morning call to her parents, Misty still had no sense that there was anything seriously wrong, and certainly no sense of the way her life was about to abruptly and drastically change. I call my parents, and I'm just like, hey, I'm doing fine. (laughs) And the doctor actually got on the line and was like, actually, Mr. and Mrs. Eisen, you need to get here right now. And they said, basically, like, if you want to see her alive, I suggest you get on the next flight to come to the University of Utah Hospital. So, of course, my parents panicked. And I was, at this point, I I think I was in another room or something. But the doctors were telling them, you know, you need to get here as soon as possible. So, from then on, um, I had a few more strokes. I was in the hospital. I remember, um, so there were some, some more strokes and some seizures intermittently. And then, and my mom finally got into town and then my dad. And they... They couldn't quite figure out what was going on. They they knew that it's it wasn't normal, obviously, for an 18-year-old to have strokes. But they were trying to figure out exactly 
not only the cause of it, but where it was going so that they could prevent future things. So, so they started doing all these different tests even more aggressively, and they decided one day that they wanted to do a kidney biopsy because they had an idea. And they said we could go, they could go in and do a really small sample, kind of, I think of like a core sample where they just kind of go in with a really big needle. And then, or they could go in and they could take like a big chunk out of my kidneys. And my, I said, am I going to be out? I'm going to be put out for this. And my, they said, yes. And I said, well, if I'm going to be out, you might as well get a big section, you know, so that you can have more of a sample. So while they were in doing that surgery, they discovered that my kidneys looked like Swiss cheese. And so they had to completely fix them and seal them. And, um, and that kind of tipped them off as well, that it was this autoimmune disease that's similar to lupus. It's in the same family, but it's, um, it was treated by a, uh, by a rheumatologist. So it's in the same family as arthritis. So with that, they realized that they needed, my immune system actually had gotten too high, which I didn't realize it could happen. But <laughs> instead of, instead of just attacking diseases, it started attacking me. Um, it was like it had become this, you know, bored immune system. <laughs> it's like, I have nothing to do. Let's just attack the kidneys or the brain. She was only 18, but it seemed like Misty's body had turned on her. If it had gone unchecked, her immune system wouldn't have stopped after attacking her kidneys and intestine, it would have gone after her heart and her lungs as well. And if this sounds like a strange disease, the treatment may seem equally strange. So from then on, they started really aggressively treating me with chemotherapy, which is odd because I didn't have cancers. They had to really knock down the immune system because it had gotten so high. They wanted to kind of reset it to reboot it so that it would recognize what was, you know, bad and what was good. So I was on crazy experimental levels of chemo, which wasn't fun. Not fun, meaning flu-like symptoms, nausea, and eventually losing her hair, though that took longer than she expected. Her recollection of this time is a little hazy, but Misty does remember some difficult conversations with her parents. I remember my mom really telling me and saying, if you want us to stop, we can stop doing this. Because at some point in there, it didn't seem like there was really any improvements at all and that there wouldn't be. And that I would probably remain pretty brain damaged for a long time. Um, and that I would probably be in pretty chronic pain for the rest of however long. So she, I remember her saying, you know, you just tell us the word and we'll be done. Because it was not good. And if you stopped, I mean, what was the, what the outcome? Been, where will be the outcome? Um that the disease would probably just take over and it would start, it would attack. They, they, they were glad because it hadn't attacked my heart or my lungs. It hadn't gotten there yet. It had gotten to kidneys. And later on we found out that it, my, my intestines ruptured. So they, it had gotten to my intestines. It had gotten into different sections. And yet, as you have probably gathered, not only has Misty lived to tell the tale, but to add a lot to it. Her life was definitely on hold at the time though Brigham Young University, where she was going to school, had a hard time coming to grips with that. My husband has a little thing that he framed for me. It's basically like, um, it's a note from my doctor because BYU kept charging me <laughs> for school. 
even though we, I had sent them letters and sent them all kinds of things, but um, it just says that I was pretty, I had a stroke and that it was pretty, um, this patient's underlying illness is not curable and might be likened to having small aneurysms throughout the small arteries of the body. She's at a high risk for reoccurrence of stroke, worsening hypertension, recurrence of bowel problems related to clots, and unable to perform even sedentary work. While physical and occupational therapy may help her in her ability to continue to care for herself, she is unable to perform only the base, only the basics activities of life. She is at this time disabled and is expected to remain permanently disabled. If I were as vibrant and energetic as Misty is now, after what she's been through, I would definitely need to point that on the pillow. But joking aside, when Misty was in the middle of the treatments, when things weren't looking good, when she and her parents were fearing permanent brain damage and other ill effects, Misty remembered a feeling she'd had a few years before. I had always felt that I was going to die young, which is kind of terrifying. But I had told my parents actually before that I had a feeling when I was about 16, I said, I feel like I'm probably going to die when I'm about 18. And this is when I was 18. (laughs) So they were pretty scared. (laughs) <laughs> because I had already told them that. And so they were like, okay, this might be it. And so I just, I think you reach a certain point where if there's a certain amount of pain or uncertainty um, combined, I think I think that people, you reach a point where it's not even sad anymore. It's just an acceptance. You're like, oh, this is the way, this is just how it's going to be. I mean, it's not, it's, it's, it's kind of odd. So it might have been fine if she just stopped the treatments and let her body finish the task it had begun. But thankfully, she had a reversal of inspiration. But I did have a kind of very personal experience that I felt like it wasn't the end um, and that I was going to make it. I didn't know how well I was going to make it, but that I should continue trying. And so we continued treatment and and then I was transferred to Texas to be with my parents, and um, they had some good cancer treatment places, which also had the same cocktail of chemo that I needed. And that's when my intestines ruptured was um, right after my flight there. So they had to fix that, and then after that, my I think I I think my body just started accepting the chemo <laughs> as best as it could, but. It, my immune system was definitely re- reset. So after that, um, things started to improve pretty slowly, but pretty surely. And um, I had a surgery to fix my eye. I had some, I, I think I remember some occupational therapy for walking and some for writing, but not a lot. And then I decided to go back to college. <laughs> And my doctors told me I was insane, and I almost failed out my first semester back. And my the dean called me in, and they said, you know, why why are you doing so badly? You were like a pretty solid B student before, and now you're not. And I told him, like, well, I have all these papers that I submitted to school, you know, and explained it to them, and they said, oh, you need tutoring. You don't need to be kicked out of school. So thanks. <laughs> so from... <laughs> From that first, the Vegas trip, the failed yes. Vegas trip, to yeah. when you re-enrolled in school, how long a period of time was that? It was about a year, I think. So yeah. were you hospitalized that whole time? I was hospitalized for three months in Salt Lake. 
and then transferred to uh, Houston. So I was in Houston for five months, and of those, probably only hospitalized like one month. I did a lot of outpatient, and then and then that summer semester, I went back to school because I'm stubborn. Maybe you're wondering what all this has to do with gestation, and we're getting there. Actually, we're there right now. So that doctor, Dr. Jackson, who was up at University of Utah Hospital, he was a rheumatology person who, who's, who was my specialist. And he kind of pulled me aside. He could see that I was doing better at school and doing better just in life and everything, and he realized that I was going to make it, that I was going to progress and do normal things. And he he kind of pulled me aside and said, I just want you to know that I don't, I don't want you to bear children. And he said, and I'm not, and I'm not saying that lightly because he was, he's a grandfather and a father. And he kind of, he was like a dad type to me. He was very fatherly. And my mom had mentioned it before to me, too. She had kind of prepared me. She said, the levels of chemo that you have been given, it's really, it doesn't look good. For you to be able to have children who aren't severely disabled or actually cause a reoccurrence of the disease, um, just the hormone influx and the different things, it could actually cause you to have a stroke on the delivery table. You could... You could just die on the delivery table. You could have spontaneous abortion of the child while you, you know, just in the middle of your day-to-day life. The doctor basically said the same thing. And he said, but as your doctor and your, he's like, you're, you're mine. (laughs) Um, I feel very paternal for you. I don't want you to have this problem and I don't want this. And he said, and let's say it works the first time. Well, then the second time the risk is even more because then you'd be leaving behind more people. And he, he said, I really, I just don't want you to think that this is a good option. He said, you need to not bear children. So he told me this and I said, okay, okay, I understand. And he said, no, I'm very serious about this. Please understand. And I said, I understand, I understand. And he said, no, I'm very serious. If you ever get engaged, bring your fiance in because I want to talk to them. And so when I did get engaged, I did. I brought my my husband in and he talked to him and my husband said, I completely understand. And we've already talked about this. And it was, I think I, I think at that point it very much hit me after I talked with him. And so I think I cried for a few hours, right? Yeah, for a few hours. And then after that, I thought, eh, this is, this is what I, this is what I want. It's, it's Okay. I think with me there was a sadness, but I don't think I ever went through a mourning process. You know, they talk about the steps of mourning and all that, and that it's, it takes a long time, and there's a grieving process. I don't think I ever went through that. I think I think I saw the woman in front of me and, and, and knew that that was the package I was getting, and I was very happy with that package. And we just went forward. I mean, I, that's all I can explain it as. Maybe I was naive. Maybe I was... I I don't know. I just, it it was okay. It was okay. And I, fortunately for me, I, I had always wanted to adopt always. I thought that first of all, I I did think that I was going to die when I was young, 
But then I thought, well, if I don't, but if I don't, then I'm, I'm the type that'll adopt. So I'm glad that I had already had that kind of seed planted in my brain at some point. So Misty and Jordan knew what they were getting into. They didn't even consider trying to get pregnant. It wasn't something they struggled with or worried over. And armed with that knowledge, pretty much as soon as they got married, they started moving forward with growing their family. So what we did is we started our paperwork for adoption pretty much like maybe a week after we were married, maybe a few days. I know we talked about it like a few days yeah, it was after. It's funny because we went to that first meeting. And yeah. All these people there who've been like through people we, for years. We went to the we went to the adoption meeting and there were these couples who had been waiting for years. They were like, "We've tried to get pregnant for so long, and then we decided to do our paperwork." And they were like. And to us, they looked ancient. They were in their 40s or, you know, their late 30s or something. And we're like, we totally have a leg up on these guys. Leg up or not, they still had to go through the adoption process. And as anyone who's gone through it or knows someone who's gone through it can tell you, it's a process. Capital P. So we started our paperwork almost immediately. And, and what that entailed was, let's see, letters of recommendation from friends and them coming to ask you what your preferences are as far as um, what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept as far as disability, possible disability or ethnicity or possible diabetes or <laughs> anything. Just what are your preferences? And then also what are your preferences for open adoptions versus closed adoptions? And we didn't even know what that meant. We're just like, uh, something good. We'll do, we'll do good things. <laughs> Nice, nice, like, positive. Whatever, whatever's <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, it just works like, yeah, it works. And then um, and they would ask, they, we had to submit, I think, um, not tax forms, but something similar where they wanted to make sure that our finances were in order. They wanted to do, oh, they did a safety check of the home where they come in and make sure you have fire extinguishers and you have fire exits and <laughs> you have enough room as far as the, you have a separate room for the baby you have oh we had to do fingerprint checks um they do a back they so they do a background investigation they look at your driving record um <laughs> what else was there um i was i was i'm a fairly open person so i i i wasn't too i didn't feel like it was too invasive i've heard a lot of people say that they've been really offended by by uh their social worker, whoever's doing the home study, but I, I don't think it was really that big of a deal. And then, but then, but then I put on the brakes. My husband was totally ready. He was like, let's have kids right now. And I'm like, eh, that sounds good. And then I kind of realized what that meant. And so I kind of, I kind of halted on the paperwork a little bit. I'm like, oh, look, we still have five papers that aren't done. That's so sad. And so I kind of waited and waited and waited. So then it was about two years or something into our marriage. And I'm like, all right, I guess it's time to finish that paperwork. So we finished it and then started the process of looking for a birth mom. There are a lot of different agencies that will help match prospective adoptive parents with birth mothers who would like to place their child. Misty and Jordan started with something familiar to them. We had talked to our church services agency, and they said that a lot of people were having success with a place called parentprofiles.com. We said, great. So we started our profile online, and um, 
we got connect. We, what it is, is it's like, I call it, it's like a dating website, but <laughs> for expectant parents. So you post up, you say, this is who we are and this is what we like and what we do. We like long walks on the beach, but instead it'll be like, we like to go camping, right? Isn't that, wasn't that the equivalent? So <laughs> we like to go camping with your little one and you know, only when they're old enough. So we did our profile and we started getting a lot of a lot of interest. And I always tease people. I say, we look really good on paper. That's why we have our kids. Because my husband was a graphic designer. I worked for a charity. I had had experience with kids with special needs. I knew sign language. So, you know, it just looked, it looked like a happy picture. I can vouch for the fact that not only do they look like a happy picture, they are genuinely happy people and happy to be around. But unfortunately, happy pictures don't necessarily get you what you were hoping for. So, um... So we got a lot of hits and we got one that was really looked like a solid one. And she was actually expecting twins, which is like the gold star of all adoptions because it's two babies in one. And we were so excited. And she was young and she lived just two hours south of us in like Lexington. And we were in Cincinnati at the time. And we're like, this is so perfect. She's like, I think that it's going to be two boys and they're going to be biracial because my boyfriend's black and I'm white. And we're like, great, that's fine. And she invited us to come visit her one time because she was in the hospital. She had some 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 minor troubles, but she wanted somebody to visit. So we went and then we went um, and then we said, oh, we're going to go get something to eat. Um, when we got back, she wasn't there in the hospital. She was gone. <laughs> and we asked the nurses and they're like, oh, she she we, we have no record of her. <laughs> it was like a total Jedi mind trick. <laughs> they're like. These are, this is not the person oh, you're seeking. Or it's like a ghost story. Yeah, you like, like a total ghost story. That, she's been dead for 40 <laughs> years. <laughs> that person haunts our halls. <laughs> she, she, she never... Luring yes. people with her twins. <laughs> That's right. And so we... Um, she was just this really funny, feisty 18-year-old. And we're like, okay, so... We called her on her cell phone and we're like, uh, what, what happened? And she said, oh, sorry... I told the nurses that you were the expectant parent or the prospective adoptive couple and they got all spooked out and they moved me because they didn't want you to pressure me. And, <laughs> and we're like, you're the one that invited us, honey. So it was, it was a little odd. So then after that, she pretty much went off the deep end. <laughs> she, she started, she started telling us that we were, that we were crazy and that she couldn't stand the thought of people like us raising her children and all kinds of really pretty hurtful things because, because we hadn't really, we hadn't really been the one that approached her. She had approached us. She had emailed us and asked us to come see anyway. So it was a very, it was a hard process, but so then, so that failed. The adoption failed, but Misty did not as much as possible. She took it in stride. And then we made friends with her. We actually still, I still text her. She talks to me and says, me, tells, has told me that those two children should have been mine because they were both born with different disabilities. One of them has hearing problems. I know sign language. So did she keep her children? She, she did. Kept them? Yeah. Okay. She got married to the birth father and then they quickly divorced after she became pregnant again. So she has three children from him, but they're, they were married for maybe six months, seven months, something like that. Anyway. So she's had hard times. 
I think you kind of have to be forgiving and resilient in this kind of situation because there seems to be a lot you have to bounce back from. A lot. But to bounce back, you have to throw yourself at it in the first place, which Misty and Jordan continued to do. So from that, we were a little gun shy um, and kind of (laughs) jaded a little, but not so much that we were like, okay, we're done Um, because we're kind of go-getters. That's kind of who we are. But we, um, my mom was working at a, a retirement home and she was, she's a social worker and there was a lady who worked there whose daughter was expecting. And, uh, she, this was her second, her second pregnancy. She had already had, she had had, she had one daughter who had special needs and she was, this, she was expecting again. And, she said, you know, I already have, I already have a child with special needs. I can't, I can't parent another one. I'm single. So we, uh, yeah, we met with her and everything went really well. And she said, I think my, it was going to be a son and we, I think it'll be a biracial little boy. Do you have a problem with that? We said, no, it sounds great. She said, I, I'm going to have a C-section because of my pre, I had, she had a previous problem. So she had a scheduled date of the delivery. So we said, okay, what would you like us to do? Would you like us to be there? Would you like us to not, you know? And she said that she would like us to be there. And so we came and we waited in the, in the uh, waiting. It was in, actually the nurses got us into a little, actually right by the nursery. We waited and then they brought the baby out and they said, here's your son. And we were just, I think we were just blown away because there was this beautiful little baby that it it was like the best thing in the world. There's just this new person. So then we, we were in contact with her. She had been very um, adamant that she did not want to be on the maternity floor. She didn't want to hear all the babies crying and which we totally understood. And we, Asked her, we said, you can be with him. She said, no, I don't, I, I don't want to do that because I feel very much that I want, I, I don't want to change my mind. I want him to be with you. It will be fine. It will be very hard for me, but I think it will be better this way. So we said, okay, we will take care of him. That's fine. So my husband and I were there at the hospital and would go to my parents' house close by to sleep and then come back to be with him all day. And so then, um, about four days later, it was about time to be released and she was going to be signing her paperwork, but we wanted to make sure that that had to be done before he was released from the hospital and everything to our custody. But before that happened, we got word that the birth father had come to the hospital to see her and to be very upset with her. And so he came and there was a bunch of commotion and um, we went in to see her in the room, but he was there and he was walking out. So we came in to see her and she was very upset. And she said, he is very angry. He's not giving his consent for this adoption and I'm not going to sign away my rights if he is going to maintain custody. 
because if she signed away her rights, then there would be no, you know, it would, he would, the baby would automatically go to the birth father. This put Misty and Jordan in a tricky situation. Even the social worker didn't know what to do. They decided to write the birth father a letter. They explained their situation, how they were not able to have children, how they understood he was the father and had his rights, but that they were really hoping to adopt this child, that they would be more than willing to speak to him and answer any questions he had for them. The social worker delivered the letter to him, but it never really went any farther than that. And then the next day, the birth father came and checked him out of the hospital and took him home. And we gave him the car seat and we gave him um, everything that we had. I'm surprised I didn't ball through that whole thing. So, so then we went. So we went to my parents' house, and I bawled and cried very much for about for about the whole night. And then after that, we dusted ourselves off and went back home to our empty house and to a place where we thought we were going to have a baby and to tell my coworkers that actually I don't have a child and to, for my husband to say, actually, I don't need to take that time off. I'm ready to go back to work and to have to explain and sometimes not explain. And I just, some, some, with some people, I just, I was like, you know what? I like you too much. And I know that I'm just going to start crying. So I'm not going to tell you. So there it is, part one. There's more to Misty's story, a lot more. We'll pick it back up in two weeks with Misty and Jordan's family growing and all that she and Jordan have had to endure and bounce back from to make it happen. So tune in next time, and thanks for hanging with us on this little cliff for a bit. And thanks to Ryan Barnhart for donating his strong volunteer spirit to this cause. Thanks to Ellen Barnhart and Ben Howell for lending their musical talents. Thanks to Misty and Jordan for reliving these difficult experiences for us and all of you. And thanks to Micah, who was the original choice to direct the Michael Keaton Batman. And while you're waiting for the next installment of Misty's Story, you can check out Misty and Jordan's website, AdoptionArts.com, where they have partnered with artists to create adoption-themed art. And since you're already online, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and give us some stars and a review on iTunes. Finally, we are on the cusp of making some changes to Cocoon, building and growing the community in different ways. We're wondering if any of you who have experience or an interest in social media might like to be involved in helping us out there. Shoot us an email if you are interested. Hello at cocoonstories.com. Till next time, 